1: Shipfuls of furred and feathered creatures were transported to Europe, where they were inspected and displayed, first as stuffed specimens in museums and soon as living animals in zoos, private collections and travelling sideshows. Into this picture stepped a remarkable band of enthusiastic amateurs who were inspired to get to know the weird and wonderful creatures of the new colony. Their backgrounds varied, but they shared a particular set of character traits. Single-minded determination, courage, often to the point of recklessness. Resilience, resourcefulness, and importantly, a growing love for the subject. A touch of eccentricity also didn't hurt. Some achieved a level of fame, but most were driven by an insatiable and endearingly pure curiosity.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm talking to Alastair Payton about his book of Marsupials and Men. Alastair, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. What did it take to be a naturalist in the early days of the white invasion of Australia?
1: In terms of uh, formal qualifications, really nothing, because um, the idea of a naturalist was was only in its infancy, I guess. And even science generally, there was uh, a lot going on in that time uh, in terms of explosion of knowledge. But it was really you could just uh, if you were interested in something, you could go out and investigate it. And really, probably the uh, uh, the biggest advantage uh, in colonial times was that if you had the, the time and the money to be able to to do that Um, but really it was just being curious and interested about the natural world Um, and then you could pretty much call yourself an expert and go and figure out what you could uh, what you could find out in the bush and it was all there to be discovered really.
0: It sounds like a, a bit of a gentleman's pursuit would that be right?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a, a fair way to describe it, absolutely. And yeah, there were some pretty high-ranking gentlemen who decided this would be something that they would uh, get interested in, and, and they made some you know fascinating discoveries, but also uh, came up with some pretty strange ideas along the way.
0: The Christian faith played quite a part in the assessment of Australian fauna by wise settlers. How did they interpret what they saw when they arrived on the shores of Australia?
1: Yeah, so obviously we're talking about the, uh, the colonialists, uh, you know, the British mainly, and, and there were a lot of... Uh, French and German naturalists in that time as well. And, and these sort of people that we're talking about. And yeah, a lot of it was based around this idea that uh, the divine creator had laid out the natural world and this, you know, incredible uh, array of animals and plants. And it was really the role of the naturalist to interpret what uh, his will was in all these uh, creatures and really in, especially in Europe and, and what they were familiar with, they thought they had a pretty good idea of that. And that a lot of these animals were there for the purpose. They had a specific purpose in the the chain of being uh which had humans at the top and all the way down to sort of snakes and, and lowly creatures at the bottom and a lot of it was to serve humans whether it's uh you know domestic cattle and oxen and or um dogs for hunting and these kind of things but when they came to australia it was really quite uh baffling i think you know we're, we're probably people were familiar with uh you see these quotes about how they just didn't understand the animals everything seemed upside down and um you know was this platypus even a real thing or was it sewed together bits of other animals And yeah, I think a lot of that was based on that theology that everything was supposed to have a purpose and uh, they thought they had it all figured out. And this really was uh, quite a challenge to their perception of of how the natural world all sort of fitted together. It wasn't really meant to be something out there like this.
0: And that brings us to the term exotic. How was the term exotic applied to Australian animals?
1: Yeah, well, in those, those sort of early days Really, the things the animals uh, that the, the settlers, the new uh, colonists, were familiar with were the creatures that they knew from England and and from Europe, and they did bring a lot of those out with them. There were lots of animals on the first fleet and on the ships that came over, and there were some really dedicated efforts to try and uh, establish populations in Australia of of animals that they were more at home with and more familiar with. And there's some uh, obviously some pretty Tragic examples of foxes and rabbits and sparrows and these kind of things that uh, we're still familiar with today. But that did evolve over the next sort of 150, 200 years so that, you know, we get to a point where now exotic animals are those introduced species and the beloved Australian animals that that we know and love are are what we know as Australians. So that's sort of the journey of the book, really, and and the people who helped us along that path.
0: At one point, uh, we had a fascination with bringing monkeys and boa constrictors into the country. What was that all about?
1: Yeah, well, that was sort of part of this whole acclimatisation movement, and that was really, um, that little anecdote is what uh, sort of got me digging into a lot of this stuff and, and ended up with uh, all the information that came together as this book was, This there were speeches at acclimatisation dinners given by governors of Victoria in the 1860s, and uh, one advocated for uh, monkeys to be released into the gardens in Melbourne and the bush around uh, where the new uh, settlement had sprung up, so that Yeah, it would be something enjoyable for the settlers to see when they went for a stroll in the bush. Um, And then uh, the next year, the new governor didn't think that was a great idea, but he had another plan, which was to bring boa constrictors in uh, and we could release those into the parks and they would uh, provide. There is a crazy story where he relates one showing up at a party and slithering around over a grand piano and everyone thought this was highly amusing. So um, that was part of the motivation there, but obviously neither of those uh, took hold, thank goodness. But um, yeah, there were plenty of other stories and this, yeah, that whole acclimatization movement lasted only about five or 10 years at most, but uh, uh, was active in lots of parts of the world, but really Australia and Melbourne in particular is where the, the most uh, zealous uh, participants were, were getting behind it. And it did yeah, cause a lot of damage to our natural environment.
0: It sounds like, uh, particularly with the monkeys, that we might have dodged a bullet there.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Well, the, I think the bow constrictors as well, that wouldn't be uh, something I'd love to see on a bushwalk.
0: I want to talk about this zoophagy, the eating of rare or exotic animals to enrich the British palate, I think, as you say. Um, I think we all know what
1: that can lead to.
0: Um, tell us a little bit about that movement.
1: Uh, yes, I hadn't actually made that connection to uh, recent history, but that's a good point. But, yeah, it was really all tied in with this, acclimatization movement and there were different reasons explanations justifications given for importing uh, animals from other parts of the world to to spread in your own country and a lot of it was yeah the european animals that we uh, that colonialists were familiar with they brought to australia but also in england they tried to do this as well bring animals in from africa or uh, south america and yeah the idea was that uh, they would be useful to eat so uh, you know animals again that natural theology uh christianity aspect of it that animals had to be useful in some way they had to have a reason for being and one reason could be that they were delicious. So um, obviously, there were certain animals that were favoured for human eating, but there were people who thought that that was very restrictive. And uh, we should go out and try and eat as many different types of animals and living things as was humanly possible.
0: I'm guessing that they tried quite a few of the Australian examples and um, didn't
1: really like them. No, you're right. They didn't take most of them, which is uh, probably a good thing. But uh, yeah, to give you an example, in July 1864, the Acclimatisation Society of Victoria held a a lavish dinner with uh, a French menu along a decastation. Some of the, I won't go with all the French pronunciations, but some of the delicacies on offer included thinly sliced wombat served with spinach, bandicoot curry and warm pate of parrot. They gave it a go. And of course,
0: around the same time was the booming trade in live exotic animals, a big feature of the 19th century, anything from jaguars to wombats. Where did Australia's fauna sit in that trade?
1: Yeah, that was an interesting thing to, to come across with that, uh, you know, studying and researching how the animals were coming to Australia, a lot of British animals to uh, be released here, that there was a, a lot of Australian animals going the other way, even though the uh, new arrivals didn't seem to think the Australian animals were worth that much, but, uh, there was a lot of interest in them overseas and, you know, um, new parts of the world being explored and discovered and new animals arriving back in London. And really it was on the, uh, the London docks where there was, uh, uh, some warehouses where you could go and just see all kinds of exotic creatures. Like you say, a rhinoceros or an elephant might've just come off the ship. Um, and there were some that just were absolutely packed with kangaroos and thousands and thousands of budgerigars and, uh, animals that would be destined for a a live menagerie or a travelling sideshow and some just private animal owners in England that just really uh, thought that they might like to have a kangaroo or an emu or uh, a crocodile in their personal collection. So, you know, you were able to go down to uh, the East End and pick one up.
0: Let's come back to Australia for
1: a moment and the suburb of Marrickville in Sydney. Tell me about Casey the chimpanzee. Uh, yes, no, I really, this is a great story. I'm glad you mentioned this, but Casey was the first chimpanzee uh, to arrive in Australia, and Ellis Joseph was one of the animal dealers who was taking Australian animals overseas and, and selling them and bringing other exotic animals back the other way, and uh, Casey was one of his, and he went on went on tour. And, you know, one of the really enjoyable parts of writing this book was a lot of the research was uh, looking up old newspaper archives from all over the place, and uh, the, the barrier miner in Broken Hill was one that I came across from 19... Uh, 19- of April in 1910, uh, was this description of Casey who on to a visited Broken Hill. Uh, He's extremely intelligent, answers readily to his name and performs various tricks. Uh, His ceaseless activities is simply wonderful and must give rise to envy in the minds of any gymnast who may be among the audience. Casey plays the piano, wheels, prams, nurses, babies, smokes, writes, plays the mouth organ and does a hundred other things. But uh, unfortunately, uh, to get back to your question, Casey visited Merrickville as well, and it didn't go so uh, well there because he escaped and went uh, on a bit of a rampage through the town. And the, uh, the newspaper descriptions then were, I mean, they are quite amusing, but unfortunately it didn't uh, end too well for one of the participants because the commotion created by Casey created such a scare that Mrs. Emily Russell of Mix Road, Merrickville dropped dead. The Sydney Morning Herald described Casey's escape and his pursuit as probably the most exciting event in the history of Marrickville. And, in fact, uh, Mr. Russell uh, went to court to try and sue for the uh, death of his wife, Um, but he did have to admit in court that the deceased was of stout build and somewhat excitable. (laughs) So, (laughs) but he did get 450
0: pounds. Uh, Can I suggest that that may still be the most exciting event to hit Marrickville? (laughs) Now things got a little bit more serious uh, with John Gould. Now John Gould is a a name well known in Australia in the field of ornithology, in particular. Despite his apparent penchant for shooting birds, uh, including, as you say, the last pink robin ever seen in South Australia, how did he impact the pursuit of natural history in Australia?
1: Yeah, now he was a really uh, a huge figure, and I did uh, said in the introduction to the book that a lot of the, the characters in the book here, people will probably. Uh, not being that familiar with and that's you know really um something i loved about unearthing these stories but john gould is one that people might might know the name at least obviously through the john gould society which uh, a lot of bird lovers would be involved with
0: the gould league is uh, what i recall as a schoolboy being a member of the gould league
1: um which actually has in its uh, little oath that birds are to be uh you know obviously treated well and not nests and not to be disturbed and these sort of things, but doesn't really reflect uh, John Gould's own practices where he's quite happy to raid nests and shoot birds in their nests and uh, hit them on the head with sticks or just grab them with his bare hands or shoot them. And yeah, so um, there was, you know, he was obviously uh, loved birds and, but the the real aim was just collecting as many as possible and documenting them. So, I mean, he played a huge role in documenting hundreds of Australian birds and other animals as well that uh, hadn't previously been, scientifically recorded but yeah in those days that really involved you know it wasn't great if you were the bird in question because that meant usually that you were uh, blasted to smithereens and then uh, put in bottle of spirits and sent back to london
0: well he actually inspired a whole league of collectors um i think you mentioned a few frederick strange johnston and james drummond john MacGillivray, uh, among them what uh, are their efforts to be applauded or otherwise
1: yeah no i think i think they are, and as I say, you know, you know, tr- you look back with, uh, try and think of how animals were viewed at the time, and it is quite different to how we would view them now. But um, they certainly achieved uh, a lot of, you know, put a lot of these birds and animals on the map, and really, John Gould was one of the first to say that you know these animals are really actually remarkable. He was, he thought the kangaroo was an incredible animal, and even koalas, which really didn't uh, get much of a rap back in those days, they were just uh, sort of boring sloth type creatures that sat around in trees. But, you know, he thought they were really fascinating and interesting. And obviously the birds he thought were magnificent and beautiful. So, um, you know, that sort of helped really change the perception of Australian animals. And, yeah, he had a lot of collectors on his books who followed in his footsteps. Um, and, yeah, I think we we do owe them a debt.
0: Your comment about koalas leads me to a really interesting story about koalas, or at least an individual, the artist responsible for Australia's first illustrated book. He was uh, John Lewin. And he was summoned to paint the what was then unpronounceable Kola or Kolu or Kula, koala as we know it, um, the first drawing to reach England. And despite the questionable scale and biological accuracy of the portrait, does Lewin still deserve a place in the pantheon of Australian naturalists?
1: Yeah, no, I think he definitely does. Um, Yeah, And he's he's a good story. And, um, you know, that's that's. Another one that, you know, there's a lot of these in the book. So, you know, it's a real collection of these interesting characters who, you know, did some really interesting scientific work. You know, we can um, look at both sides of the picture and say there were some things that we wouldn't uh, approve of the way they went about it today. But then there's just, you know, the, the quirky and interesting people who got involved in this sort of field. And even the story of how John Lewin came to Australia and uh, how he put his wife on uh, on the boat and then went home to get some unspecified item. And then when he came back to the docks in London, the boat had literally sailed uh, and he was stuck uh, about a year behind his wife who arrived and she... He when he finally did get there, there were all kind of scandals about uh, what she had been up to in on the ship and with his absence. So um, it was sort of one of the early colonial scandals in Australia, which he sort of had to really fight to uh, clear his name, which he did successfully. But um, yeah, the, I think uh, he's you know he's one that I was really happy to to put his story on the page, and you know hopefully um, people can recognise some of these figures for their their early work that they did. It's
0: an interesting approach to divorce, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about the snake men. This is a
0: particularly amusing section and contains some black humour amongst it as well, of course. There's a nice quote there. The most essential thing after a person has been bitten by a venomous snake is not to despair and not to consider himself doomed.
1: Gerard Kreft, yeah, who was uh, one of the early directors of the Sydney Museum and, and one of the first people to really look into Australian snakes, published the first book of Australian snakes. And, um, yeah, that sort of reflects the fact that, uh uh, you know, as we said, this was all new territory and uh, these were animals that hadn't been looked into before, and especially the snakes, they were really the last class of animals to be uh, investigated because people uh, didn't see them that often and and they weren't considered as interesting and as worthy as other creatures. But they were, yeah, this really interesting group of, uh, they were all men, I think, they they called themselves snakeys or snake men who um, just were became obsessed with snakes and really with that idea that, you know, snakes you know, aren't that bad. We, we need to communicate this idea to the wider world that snakes are really interesting and, you know, shouldn't be uh, looked down upon as sort of uh, literally, I guess, as they were, but uh, it did did come back to bite them, I guess, uh, literally in many cases.
0: Now, uh, this fellow, Johann Ludwig Gerhard Kreft, was a German, and uh, it just takes me back to um, for a moment to Ludwig Leichhardt, another German who I think in your book is described by rather unflatteringly, as an eccentric, gluttonous, gangling German, definitely not flattering. And Kreft, I think, suffered from the same, uh, I guess, uh, discrimination. Can you take us through just for a moment about his interaction with the Australian Museum in particular?
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's true. And I think uh, he also was uh, quite a, an abrupt sort of character who didn't suffer fools uh, lightly, and he saw some of the um, bureaucrats who ran the museum as Collectors who didn't have really any interest in advancing scientific knowledge. And he was quite a big proponent of Darwin's new theories, which were, were fairly new on the scene at that time. And it took some of the other establishment uh, a while to catch up to those. But um, he was museum director for a few years there, but uh, just kept butting heads with that uh, establishment. And it all turned sour when they uh, demanded that he return the keys to the museum, um, leveled a whole series of charges against him that he was stealing specimens and. Um, I think there was one of them was he used uh, some of the museum items to make furniture for himself. Uh, some of them were yeah, seemed pretty crazy, but uh, he really uh, wasn't going along with this plan at all, and his reaction was to barricade himself in his office in the museum. And the, the whole dispute only was settled when they found some uh, prize fighters to break down the door, and uh, he was sitting in his ornate red leather chair, and they picked him up in the chair and basically threw him into the street, and uh, that was the end of his museum career no good
0: end to it, to it what was apparently a fairly illustrious career. And he was a serious naturalist after all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the uh, that red, red leather chair is now on display in the museum. So uh, really recognising some of his work and that, yeah, you know, he really was a, a champion for science and for, even though he did, as you say, suffer probably from a bit of discrimination from his uh, German heritage, that he was really um, championed Australian science and keeping animals here to be studied rather than sending them all overseas.
0: Your book, kind of wraps up with, uh, well, the naturalist in the media and uh, particularly the TV naturalist. That's a category possibly unique to Australia. Um, but there's a was a whole menagerie of celebrity nature writers that came before them. It seems that their influence is mostly positive, despite the exploits of Russell Coit, for example. Let's talk about for a moment the one person, I guess, that everybody knows, Harry Butler.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. And this is what I, I was really enjoyed writing this section because I remember this as a kid watching these ABC documentaries and it was really that uh stereotypical uh bearded khaki clad uh, Australian naturalist who tropes out into the bush and grab animals out of trees or lift up a, a piece of bark on the ground and tell you what was going on. And um and Harry Butler probably was the uh the, the number one man for a while, although as you say, there were there were quite a lot. Um, but yeah, he had a really interesting approach to conservation and he, uh, was, you know, his programs had a huge reach and would have had a big impact on introducing people to animals and improving the, how Australian animals were perceived. But he also was, had this idea that development and conservation could really go hand in hand. And it, it really ended up, um, it ruined his career and, and ruined his reputation in a lot of ways that he was, you know, sort of signed on to promote, Um, developments in places like Kakadu National Park and to defend the um, Franklin River Dam uh, project. So he ended up on the the wrong side of uh, a lot of those conservation battles.
0: Now, as a final question, or I guess a final proposition, while Of Marsupials and Men is extremely informative and enormously entertaining, I also detect an air of lament in this book. Do you despair for the future of Australian fauna?
1: Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I try to be hopeful and there's, uh, yeah, the conclusion of the book does tell the story of the worryingly high rates of extinction amongst Australian animals. Since, you know, 1788, I think 24 Australian mammals have gone extinct and that's the same as the whole rest of the world combined. So uh, it's not something that we want to be um, at the, you know, number one in the world at, but, and there's a lot of animals, you know, only in the last month or two the koala was placed on the um endangered species list in queensland new south wales and the act and that's just like to think that you know in our lifetime the koala could go extinct it's just like that does make me very sad so but i i hope that um you know in writing the book and people reading these stories and and you know i think everybody loves these animals and just reminding people of, of what's at stake uh we'll hopefully get some more action and you know the there's solutions are out there you know we, it's not that something's going to happen that we just can't figure out why um, we know why there's, you know, it's mainly to do with habitat loss and global warming and, you know, there's some big problems, but, you know, if we can address those and get moving, then, you know, we really want to be able to be able to go out in the bush. Like, you know, part of the, the inspiration, I guess if you go all the way back to my own childhood was I just loved uh, my parents taking me on bushwalks and looking up trees, trying to find koalas and, and um, animals coming across Australian animals like that. And, you know, we really want future generations to be able to do that as well.
0: Well, that's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, Alistair, and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Alistair Payton about his new book, Of Marsupials and Men. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. (music) Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.